a reading from Genesis, beginning with the 42nd chapter, the 29th verse. When Jacob's sons returned from Egypt to Jacob, their father, in the land of Canaan, they told him all that had happened to them. And Jacob, their father, said to them, You have bereaved me of my children. Joseph is no more, and Simeon is no more, and now you would take Benjamin? All this has come against me. Then Reuben said to his father, Kill my two sons if I do not bring him back to you. Put him in my hands, and I will bring Benjamin back to you. But he said, My son shall not go down with you, for this brother, his brother is dead, and he is the only one left. If harm should happen to him on the journey that you are to make, you would bring down my gray hairs with sorrow to shale. Now the famine was severe in the land. And when Jacob and his sons and their family had eaten the grain that they had brought from Egypt, their father said to them, Go again, buy us a little food. But Judah said to him, The man solemnly warned us, saying, You shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. If you will send our brother with us, we will go down and buy you food. But if you will not send him, we will not go down. For the man said to us, You shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. And Judah said to Israel, his father, send the boy with me and we will arise and go that we may live and not die, both we and you and also our little ones. I will be a pledge for his safety. From my hand, you shall require him. If I do not bring him back to you and set him before you, then let me bear the blame forever. If we had not delayed, we would now have returned twice. Then their father Israel said to them, if it must be so, then do this. Take some of the choice fruits of the land in your bags and carry a present down to the man, a little balm and a little honey, gum, myrrh, pistachio nuts, and almonds. Take double the money with you. Carry back with you the money that was returned in the mouth of your sacks. Perhaps it was an oversight. And take also your brother, Benjamin, and arise, go again to the man. May God Almighty grant you mercy before the man, and may he send back your other brother and Benjamin. And as for me, if I'm bereaved of my children... I'm bereaved. So the men took this present and they took double the money with them and Benjamin. They arose and went down to Egypt and stood before Joseph. After testing his brothers, Joseph could not control himself before all those who stood by him. He cried, make everyone go out from me. So no one stayed with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And he wept aloud so that the Egyptians heard it and the household of Pharaoh heard it. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer him, for they were dismayed at his presence. So Joseph said to his brothers, Come near to me, please. And they came near. And he said, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And now, do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here, for God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth, and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me a father to Pharaoh, and lord of all his house, and ruler over all the land of Egypt. Hurry and go up to my father and say to him, Thus says your son Joseph, God has made me Lord of all Egypt. Come down to me. Do not tarry. You shall dwell in the land of Goshen. You shall be near me. 
you and your children and your children's children and your flocks, your herds and all that you have, there I will provide for you. And there are yet five years of famine to come so that you and your household and all that you have did not come to poverty. And now your eyes see and the eyes of my brother Benjamin see that it is my mouth that speaks to you. You must tell my father of all my honor in Egypt and of all that you have seen. Hurry and bring my father down here. Then he fell upon his brother Benjamin's neck and wept. And Benjamin wept upon his neck. And Joseph kissed all his brothers and wept upon them. And after that, his brothers talked with him. So Joseph's brothers went up out of Egypt and came to the land of Canaan to their father Jacob. And they told him, Joseph is still alive. He's ruler over all the land of Egypt. And his heart became numb, Jacob's, for he did not believe them. But when they told him all the words of Joseph, which he had said to them, And when he saw the wagons that Joseph had sent to carry him, the spirit of their father Jacob revived, and Israel said, It is enough. Joseph, my son, is still alive. I will go and see him before I die. So Israel took his journey with all that he had and came to Beersheba and offered sacrifices to the God of his father Isaac. And God spoke to Israel in visions of the night and said, Jacob, Jacob. And Jacob said, Here I am. Then God said, I am God, the the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for there I will make you into a great nation. I myself will go down with you to Egypt, and I will also bring you up again, and Joseph's hand shall close your eyes. Then Jacob set out from Beersheba. The sons of Israel carried Jacob their father, their little ones and their wives, in the wagons that Pharaoh had sent to carry him. Jacob had sent Judah ahead of him to Joseph to show the way before him in Goshen, and they came into the land of Goshen. Then Joseph prepared his chariot and went up to meet Israel, his father, in Goshen. He presented himself to him and fell on his neck and wept on his neck a good while. Israel said to Joseph, Now let me die, since I have seen your face and know that you are still alive. Then Joseph brought in Jacob, his father, and stood him before Pharaoh. And Jacob blessed Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said to Jacob, How many are the days of the years of your life? And Jacob said to Pharaoh, The days of the years of my sojourning are 130 years. Few and evil have been the days of the years of my life. And they have not attained to the days of the years of the life of my fathers and the days of their sojourning. And Jacob blessed Pharaoh and went out from the presence of Pharaoh. Then Joseph settled his father and his brothers and gave them a possession in the land of Egypt, in the best of the land, in the land of Ramses, as Pharaoh had commanded. And Joseph provided his father, his brothers, and all his father's household with food according to the number of their dependents. Thus Israel settled in the land of Egypt, in the land of Goshen, and they gained possessions in it and were fruitful and multiplied greatly. And Jacob lived in the land of Egypt 17 years. So the days of Jacob, the years of his life, were 147 years. After this, Joseph was told, Behold, your father is ill. So Joseph took with him two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim. And it was told to Jacob, Your son Joseph has come to you. Then Israel summoned his strength and sat up up in bed. And Jacob said to Joseph, 
God Almighty appeared to me at Luz in the land of Canaan and blessed me and said to me, Behold, I will make you fruitful and multiply you, and I will make of you a company of peoples and will give this land to your offspring after you for an everlasting possession. And now your two sons who were born to you in the land of Egypt before I came to you in Egypt, they're mine. Ephraim and Manasseh shall be mine as Reuben and Simeon are. And the children that you fathered after them shall be yours. They shall be called by the name of their brothers and their inheritance. When Israel saw Joseph's sons, he said, Who are these? And Joseph said to his father, They are my sons whom God has given me here. And he said, Bring them to me, please, that I may bless them. Now the eyes of Israel were dim with age, so that he could not see. So Joseph brought them near him. And he kissed them and embraced them. And Israel said to Joseph, I never expected to see your face, and behold, God has let me see your offspring also. Then Joseph removed them from his knees, and he bowed himself with his face to the earth. And Joseph took them both, Ephraim in his right hand toward Israel's left hand, and Manasseh in his left hand toward Israel's right hand, and brought them near him. And Israel stretched out his right hand and laid it on the hand of Ephraim, who was the younger, and his left hand on the head of Manasseh, crossing his hands, for Manasseh was the firstborn. And he blessed Joseph and said, The God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who has been my shepherd all my life long to this day, the angel who has redeemed me from all evil, bless the boys, and in them let my name be carried on in the name of my fathers Abraham and Isaac, and let them grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. But when Joseph saw that his father laid his right hand on the head of Ephraim, it displeased him, and he took his father's hand to move it from Ephraim's head to Manasseh's head. And Joseph said to his father, Not this way, my father, since this one is the firstborn. Put your right hand on his head. But his father refused and said, I know, my son, I know. He also shall become a people, and he also shall be great. Nevertheless, his younger brother shall be greater than he, and his offspring shall become a multitude of nations. So he blessed them that day, saying, By you, Israel, will pronounce blessings, saying, God make you as Ephraim and as Manasseh. Thus he put Ephraim before Manasseh. And then Jacob called his sons and said, Gather yourselves together, that I may tell you what shall happen to you in days to come. Assemble and listen, O sons of Jacob. Listen to Israel, your father. Reuben, you're my firstborn, my might, and the firstfruits of my strength. Preeminent in dignity and preeminent in power, unstable as water. You shall not have preeminence, because you went up to your father's bed, then you defiled it. He went up to my couch. Then Jacob blessed his other sons, Simeon and Levi, Judah, Zebulun, Dan, Gad, Asher, and Naphtali. And after them, he blessed Joseph again, and then Benjamin. All these are the 12 tribes of Israel. This is what their father said to them as he blessed them, blessing each with the blessing suitable to him. And then he commanded them and said to them, I am to be gathered to my people. Bury me with my fathers in the cave that's in the field of Ephron, the Hittite, in the cave that's in the field of Machpelah, in the east of Mamre, in the land of Canaan, which Abram brought, bought with the field from Ephron, the Hittite, to possess as a burying place. There they buried Abraham and Sarah, his wife. There they buried Isaac and Rebekah, his wife. And there I buried Leah. The field and the cave that is in it were bought from the Hittites. And when Jacob finished commanding his sons, he drew up his feet into the bed and breathed his last 
and was gathered to his people. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I speak to you in the name of God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. Well, I promise that was the abridged version of those chapters. I really tried to cut it down. So today we come to the end of our Summer Jacob series with a seventh and final sermon. And in today's abridged passage, we read about the rest of Jacob's life. Now, between last Sunday's reading and today's, at the beginning of chapter 42, the widespread famine had driven Jacob's 10 older sons to Egypt for food. And like everyone else, they have to get it from Joseph, the overseer of Egypt, who now has an Egyptian name. So they don't know it's Joseph, but Joseph provides them with food, not revealing his identity. And yet he insists that should they return for more food without their youngest brother, Benjamin, that he wouldn't see them. Well, shifting to chapter 43 with Jacob's family running out of food again, the brothers go back to Egypt with Benjamin in tow. And it's only during this second visit that Joseph reveals his identity to his brothers and makes clear that he believed the Lord had turned what his brothers had intended for evil into great good for not just them, but for all people. But with Joseph knowing that five of the seven years of famine still remain, he insists that his brothers retrieve their father and their families and come settle in Egypt. And when the brothers return and tell Jacob that the son whose death they had faked is not only alive, but is prospering, Jacob is, of course, more than willing, eager to go see him. So in chapter 46, with his entire household in tow, Jacob journeys to Egypt and has an emotional reunion with Joseph. And after standing before Pharaoh, Joseph settles Jacob and his family in Goshen. But after this, at the end, Genesis skips forward 17 years when Jacob is on his deathbed. And Jacob first blesses his two grandsons by Joseph, as if they are his own sons. And then Jacob blesses all his sons and orders them to bury him back in Canaan, before finally he breathes his last. So with this being the final sermon of the Jacob series, we will certainly get into some of what transpired in these final chapters I just reviewed. But first... I want to review the lifelong journey, briefly, that Jacob has been on. But I want to do so through a slightly different lens that I haven't introduced to this point. You see, when I first began studying Jacob this summer, one significant insight I came across was that of Vance Shepperson, who is now a retired Christian psychologist and author, In a 1984 article on Jacob from the Journal of Psychology and Theology, Shepperson suggests that the account of Jacob in Genesis is a portrait of a man who exhibits most, if not all, of what today would be diagnosed as narcissistic personality disorder. 
Now, while I've probably been warming many of you over the past seven weeks to the idea that Jacob wasn't actually all that great of a guy, I'm guessing this may be the first time you've heard one of the four biblical patriarchs associated with a pathological character disorder. But if you'll allow me to relay some of the connections Shepherdson makes, I think you may find it difficult to disagree. So indulge me for a moment. But to explain, narcissistic personality disorder, also known as NPD, has received an increase of attention among the general public in recent years. And it's characterized by a cluster of pathological character traits that include being deficient in the emotional capacities to feel empathy, love, or guilt for wrong behaviors. A narcissist is known for seeking after magical shortcuts over the delayed gratification that comes through work or sustaining substantial relationships. A narcissist is known for being subject to self-absorbed grandiosity, which is the expectation that they'll achieve greatness and be recognized for it. They have a strong need for power, and they tend to display moments of enraged entitlement, supported by a tendency toward envy of others. As, as author Chuck DeGroote writes in his book, When Narcissism Comes to Church, they believe the world owes them a debt that they intend to extract from the others who surround them. Additionally, narcissists usually have an extremely low threshold for risk or uncertainty, which is what creates the need for them to control others. They're typically preoccupied with external appearances while being averse to doing inward reflection and struggling with deliberation. Cognitively, they're given to quick hunches, whims, and impulses. And finally, narcissists usually have a strong need for others to mirror them. That is, to see the world the way they do, reflect their view of the world back to them. And they tend to come off smooth initially as charming or ingratiating. But behind this personality, which eventually wears on people, is a false self. The false self shields them, shields their true self from shame and exposure that they fear subconsciously. Now, that's the psychology lesson. But does any of this sound like the Jacob we've been getting to know? Well, Shepherson goes through the Genesis account of Jacob and demonstrates how Jacob displays most, if not all, of these negative traits in his younger years. So the first major episodes of Jacob's life that Genesis describes beyond his birth are when as a teenager he exploits first a moment of weakness and hunger for his older brother Esau by bargaining to give Esau some stew in exchange for his birthright inheritance, which is hardly an even trade. And then this is followed sometime later by Jacob deceiving his aging father, Isaac, at his mother's prompting. Deceiving Isaac into believing that he, Jacob, was actually his brother Esau in order to steal the fatherly blessing that in that culture, rightly or wrongly, was reserved for the firstborn. So with these two instances of cheating his brother Esau, Jacob displays many of the traits of narcissism we've mentioned. He acts out of that envy and sense of enraged entitlement 
that the world's holding out on him and he's not getting what he deserves, so he's going to take it. He demonstrates an intolerance for risk, fearful of entering into adulthood without the security that that birthright inheritance might provide. He displays little to no introspection or sense of his own self as he actually lets his mother do his thinking for him and impulsively follows her direction. And then his lack of empathy and self-absorption are displayed in how he seems not to care at all how his actions might impact other people or really how they would eventually impact him. Scripture never indicates Jacob feeling any guilt after he does these these things. Rather, it only shows him uh, feeling regret at the consequences of his actions, which is typical of narcissists. That it doesn't work out is what he regrets. And yet, what he does is also an example of impulsively seeking a magical shortcut over delayed gratification without considering the fallout that's going to come, which in Jacob's case is having to flee from his home. Now understand that the reason the narcissist develops all these defenses in the first place is in order to avoid feeling emotional pain above all else. The narcissist lives their life almost entirely out of a false persona that allows them to avoid confronting an expanse of dead emptiness and self-contempt within. But it's repressed, meaning they're not conscious of it. Typically, it develops from certain dysfunctional patterns in their family of origin. And we see that in what happens next. Evidence of kind of the darkness inside the self-loathing. In chapter 28, before sending Jacob away to Laban, Isaac actually blesses Jacob a second time, you'll remember. Then on his way to Laban, the Lord encounters Jacob by giving him a dream of angels ascending and descending on a ladder and promising to bless Jacob, God does. And yet, even though God promises to bless him, Jacob bizarrely responds to God by attempting to bargain with him saying that if God will keep him and provide for him, Jacob will give him a full tenth of everything he he gets or has. It's as if Jacob didn't even hear God's promise to bless him. And remember, it's God's promise to bless him without asking anything in return. Nor does he seem to have heard the blessings of his father or been able to receive those. And so Jacob shows himself to be completely incapable of receiving blessings of receiving love or believing he is lovable. Instead, he treats God like a vendor at a marketplace, clearly believing that for God to give him anything, he has to promise something in exchange. Right? The way he relates to God is entirely transactional. And then finally, Jacob arrives at Laban's and falls in love or in lust probably more accurate, immediately with Laban's beautiful daughter, Rachel. We suggested in week two of the series that it's likely more the idea of Rachel or Jacob's projection of his fantasy wife upon Rachel that Jacob really falls in love with rather than Rachel herself. 
But here we see evidence of Jacob being preoccupied with external appearances, with having that trophy wife, we might say, and pursuing yet another, trying to pursue yet another magical shortcut to happiness in life, right? And further evidence that he's objectified Rachel is his offer. Remember, this wasn't Laban's idea. It was Jacob's idea to work for Laban seven years to have her as his wife. Now, as I said before, I'm sure very few of us were ever inclined to view biblical figures like Jacob in a negative light. And certainly not in a pathological light. And this is because there's a tendency in churches, and especially Sunday school where these stories get to be covered more often, a tendency to whitewash pretty much all biblical characters as heroes, apart from maybe Judas, right? We'll scapegoat that guy. But everybody else is kind of taught and assumed to be a, a great hero in kind of every way. But reading the Bible in this way comes from a great, grave misunderstanding of Scripture and what's going on in the Bible as a whole. Because the human characters of Scripture were never meant to be viewed as heroes. Rather, in every biblical story, we are meant to see the hero as God and his son, Jesus Christ. God is the hero of Scripture in every Scripture story. Even Joseph, whom we looked at last week and who prefigures Jesus in many ways, even he's certainly not without his flaws, right? Even he is not a hero. The hero of Joseph's story is God and what God does through his life. So we may wonder then why God would provide us with the story of the life of Jacob for 10 plus chapters here in Genesis, if Jacob is an example or demonstrates what today would be diagnosed as a clinical level character disorder like narcissism, why would God provide this example? Well, there's two reasons. The first is because every one of us is narcissistic to some degree or another. Certainly not all of us to a clinical extent, which is estimated at something like 6% of the general population. But none of us are immune from all these flawed character traits Jacob displays, right? Or as Shepherson says, there is a Jacob within each one of us. But this leads to the second reason. And that is that there's, there's such a poor prognosis of narcissists ever changing. And one can think in scripture of the character of Laban as an obvious example of this. He never seems to progress or change in his character. One difficulty for those with NPD is that the nature of this particular disorder typically blinds them from seeing it in themselves, right? Because to see it or admit it would be shattering, right? As DeGroote explains, sadly, when narcissism becomes toxic to that level, the person generally has little to no capacity to see herself or the debris of relational damage in his or her wake. And this makes what we see God do in Jacob in the years that follow 
his arrival at Laban's, this makes what we see God do in Jacob all the more remarkable. Because God loves Jacob, actively loves him, and uses his life experiences to overhaul Jacob's character. So that by the time of his death, Jacob is by no means completely cured or free of any narcissism, but his character and his emotional maturity have been significantly transformed. God and God alone is truly the hero of Jacob's story. So what I'd like to do next here is look at this heroic work God does over the rest of Jacob's life. We've already seen that God first encounters Jacob personally on his way to Laban's in that stairway dream. This appeals to Jacob's own grandiosity, right? Wow, I get this kind of dream. I must be pretty special. And Shepperson explains that that's about the only way to get through to a narcissist at that initial stage, is to appeal to that, to make him feel special. But as we said, Jacob had no capacity to believe that anyone could ever love or bless him in the way God promised. He lacked any sense of self, really, we might say in modern terms. And so when Jacob arrives at Laban's, God begins developing that in Jacob. And the first circumstance that allows for this is that Isaac had failed to give Jacob any money for a bride price, which was the custom in those days. And this requires Jacob to instead work for seven years before he can marry Rachel. Shepherson explains this was actually a huge benefit to Jacob for his development. Because if he'd been allowed to go straight from being enmeshed with his mom to enmeshed with his new wife, he never would have been forced to become an adult and learn to think and make decisions for himself. Like we said last week, is so important around that age. But Jacob also gets in these seven years to learn delayed gratification, to tolerate some suffering rather than taking magical shortcuts, right? Because no matter what he did, he had to put in these seven years to work hard for something. Of course, Jacob ends up staying at Laban's for not just seven, but for 20 years. You'll recall that Laban first tricked Jacob into marrying Leah instead of Rachel. And he takes advantage of Jacob by squeezing an additional seven years of work out of him for Rachel. And then when Jacob wants to leave, Laban coaxes Jacob into working six more years before he can finally break away. As we've said, Laban is a narcissist as well, for sure. And yet these 20 years are enormously beneficial to Jacob, even if they're painful in some ways. Because living with Laban is in many ways like looking at himself, Jacob looking at himself in the mirror. Through Laban's own deceptive and envious and self-interested and power-driven behavior toward him, Jacob frankly gets to experience what it feels like to be on the receiving end of narcissistic abuse. And he doesn't like it. He realizes it's not too much fun. And so the scripture tells us that in response to that experience, Jacob develops in some ways. He develops the ability to speak up for himself. He, he becomes accountable for his own behaviors. And he becomes more honest in his business dealings. But eventually the Lord calls Jacob home. 
where he'll be forced to make amends for the wrongs he's done to his brother Esau. However, before making it to Esau, the Lord gets Jacob alone by the river Jabbok. And through wrestling Jacob, God shows him the reality of his way of living. And as Christian psychologist Diane Landberg says, the narcissist has many gifts, but not the gift of humility. And that's what God gives Jacob at the river Jabbok. At Jabbok, Jacob finally surrenders to God and his true self in God begins to emerge. God even marks this by giving him a new name, Israel. And so this time when God promises to bless Jacob, Jacob's actually able to believe it and receive it, at least to some extent, more than he had ever before. And yet, as with anyone's conversion, while some change had occurred, plenty of his old traits still remained. And we see Genesis hinting at this by alternating between referring to him as Israel and as Jacob, right? Even up through today's passage, we saw that. Sometimes he calls him, Genesis calls him Jacob, sometimes he calls him Israel. But also the last two weeks, we've looked at the sins of the father and how many consequences of Jacob's pathology played out in the lives of his children. But this brings us to today's reading. In today's concluding chapters, we see Jacob continuing to progress in some significant ways. The first instance is in regard to his youngest son, Benjamin. Now, as far as Jacob knew at this point, Benjamin is the only remaining son from Rachel who died giving birth to Benjamin. But when Jacob's other sons had gone to Egypt the first time, the man, whom only we know is Joseph at this point, he told the brothers if they returned for more food, they had to bring that youngest brother. Well, initially, we see in chapter 42 that Jacob refuses. He's just not going to let go of Benjamin, right? He's already lost Joseph and Joseph hung on to Simeon. But when their food runs out again, in chapter 43, Jacob finally relents and allows them to take Benjamin along. Now what this shows is a willingness, finally, to tolerate some risk, trust in the Lord, to give up some control and allow another to exercise authority over him. In this case, it's Egypt exercising authority. Jacob does this here in ways he had never done before. This is completely unprecedented for his character. And he had to endure some pain to get there too, it's notable. The second mark of growth we see in Jacob is when he stands before Pharaoh in chapter 47, verse 7. Now, his blessing of Pharaoh seems a little bit clueless. Um, we'll let you discuss that in life groups or something. But, but, but here, Jacob no longer seems to care about appearing impressive. He seems to have kind of gotten over the whole external appearance thing. Instead, he's forthright with Pharaoh and honest when Pharaoh asks him about his life, saying in verse 9 that the years of his life had been few and evil, hardly self-promotion, saying that not, they'd been nothing in compared to the days of his fathers. And yet even at his deathbed, 
some residual, some narcissistic residual still remains in Jacob. You may have noticed. This is evidenced by how he bestows blessings. Right? The bestowing of blessings is a good thing. But long ago, Jacob had been deeply wounded by his own father, Isaac's preference for his older brother, brother Esau over him, which led Jacob to steal both the double inheritance and the paternal blessing that was due to Esau as the firstborn. And so it is with great significance in chapters 48 and 49 that we see Jacob persist in this sin of his father by continuing to favor a younger son, Joseph, over his older son, Reuben, as Jacob blesses Joseph's two sons as if they are his own sons, he says, and thereby bestows a double blessing upon Joseph's line. And then, despite their father Joseph's protest, Jacob insists upon giving Joseph's son Ephraim the blessing of the firstborn over his older brother, brother Manasseh. Amazing. And so the story of Jacob's redemption shows that God can bring change into anyone's life. He can bring transformation to even the hardest of hearts. Yet Jacob never would have chosen any of the hardships that God used and had to use to refine his character. He wouldn't have signed up for any of that on purpose. It's notable that Jacob's most significant transformation comes through the three moments in his life where he's stripped of all his worldly sources of security, right? When he's homeless on the way to Laban's, when he's all alone at the river Jabbok, and when his family is starving in a famine. That's where he makes his hugest character jumps, right? But make no mistake that having biblical faith is not believing that we can do great things, but being open and cooperating with God, what God wants to do through you. That's what the life of discipleship to Jesus, taking up our cross, is all about. Allowing him to put to death the false self or selves that we've engineered consciously or unconsciously to obtain a blessing apart from God. It is a painful journey to sign up for and agree to. I think some of us are naive in signing up for it. We don't know what we're really signing up for, blessedly. And yet, it is worth it at every step. Jacob reaps some blessings he never, ever would have imagined, let alone experienced apart from God. And yet the greatest blessing Jacob receives is God himself. And the same is true for us. You know, every blessing we could ever receive, we'll either eventually lose or have to return. With one exception. And that blessing that we'll never lose or have to return is God. 
and for those willing to follow him along the narrow path, we will come to know him so much more, so much better than we do now, just like Jacob. And also like Jacob, the Lord will be ours and we will be his forever. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, amen.